Mark chapter number 4, and we're going to look here at verses 36 through 41 this morning uh, and look really at, uh, at one primary aspect of this. I'm not going to try to break all of it down and touch on everything that's within it. And so, but we are going to look at really one element in this um, a little bit more closely this morning. And so, if you found your places there, Mark chapter number 4. Verse number 36, this is not an unfamiliar story. On the contrary, it's one that uh, I think most everyone here would, would know well or at least have uh, some familiarity with. And so they're here. Uh, and on verse 36, he says, And when they had sent away the multitude, they took him even as he was in the ship. And there were also with him other little ships. And there arose a great storm of wind. And the waves beat into the ship so that it was now full. And he was in the hinder part of the ship, asleep on a pillow. And they awake him and say unto him, Master, carest thou not that we perish? And he arose and he rebuked the wind and said unto the sea, Peace be still. And the wind ceased and there was a great calm. And he said unto them, Why are ye so fearful? How is it that ye have no faith? And they feared exceedingly and said one to another, What manner of man is this, that even the wind and the sea obey him? I'm going to speak this morning just simply on that thought, ask that question. What manner of man is this? Let's pray. Father, thank you again for the time. Bless your word. Holy Spirit, work in our hearts, we pray. In Jesus' name, and amen. Jesus, when he began his earthly ministry, as you notice here, we're just in the fourth chapter of the Gospel of Mark. This is not deep into the Lord's ministry. His ministry essentially was a little over three years, uh, and he lived for 30 before he began it. Uh, and so for 30 years, he's been pretty obscure. He's been known in Nazareth. He's uh, done everything that God had for him to do. He's learned what God would have him to learn. He's well established. He's skilled in, in labor <clears throat> as a carpenter. And he's just been uh, doing the things that God would have him do until such a time as he was to actually launch his ministry uh, and his ministry years here on earth. And so when we come to this point, that ministry has been launched, but it's not been, uh, we're not in the, in the waning months before the crucifixion. We're still pretty early on. And Jesus has come and he's assembled his disciples. He's called them. He's gone to them where they are and he's brought them forth. He's encouraged them when they've needed encouragement. He's taught them and given them instruction. And that's an ongoing process. There's not a time in Jesus' interaction with them from the time that he called them into the time that he ascends uh, into heaven that he is not constantly preparing them, teaching them, helping them, encouraging them, rebuking them. But the, the ongoing process of their development and their walk with God has been, has been an ongoing project. Now much of what he's done, he's done just simply by example. Has he taught them and given them instruction in a classroom setting? Of course he has. But he's also taught them by allowing them to see him interacting with other people, teaching in synagogues and on the streets and uh, seeing him uh, go about his business. And 
they've seen him carry a heavy load and be extremely burdened with his time constraints and with people making demands of him constantly and <clears throat> excuse me and drawing upon him and his power uh, they've witnessed that at this point they they've seen many miracles they've heard him give parables they've seen him respond to critics uh, they're still soaking all of this in but they're not out here in this boat crossing at a time where they're still unaware that this man is extraordinary in his ability to teach, that he's extraordinary in his power and ability to heal and to touch and to change lives. That, that's not uh, something they haven't witnessed. He's already, they've seen him cast out demons. They've, they, they've witnessed many great things. Yet, <clears throat> as they get in the ship, and they start across, and the Lord lays down to get some rest. And the wind comes up, and the storms begin to beat the ships. They really ask what is, or make an, a ridiculous assumption. I want you to notice whenever he, he comes along, and, uh, and, and they look at themselves, and there arose a great storm in verse 37 of wind, and the waves beat into the ship so that it was now full. And he was in the hinder part of the ship asleep on a pillow. And they awake him and say unto him, Master, carest thou not that we perish? And you stop and you think about what they've seen. They've seen him show ex extreme compassion. They've seen him go out of his way to people that no one else would take time for. They, they've seen him sacrifice. They've seen him love them. They've experienced and felt firsthand his care and his love and compassion toward them. Yet in this moment, they look at him and they wake him up and they say, don't you even care that we're going to die? What a ridiculous statement. Now I wasn't there, so I'm not trying to sound too judgy on them. Uh, and so I might have felt the same way if I was there. Uh, I, I try to be kind of careful to not look back at different characters in the Bible and think, man, if I would have been there, I would have done that different. I probably would have responded as well as they did. But the reality is, is that at this point, they're aware that this is no ordinary man. They're aware that they are with, on some level, God. And yet, they wake him up and say, don't you care? He doesn't respond to them immediately. He responds to the storm immediately. He gets up and he calms the storm. In which case they're terrified. And again, I, I would imagine that probably if we were there in that type of a storm, that we would be terrified. It's really hard for us to comprehend the kind of, of, of thrashing about on the ship that they would have been enduring on those kind of seas and that small of a vessel. Um, you know, I, I, look at, I look at vessels now and I think, I wouldn't want to cross an ocean in that. I mean, I just drive across the ship channel over here and, uh, and uh, across the Hartman Bridge and, uh, and look down. And I always find myself glancing out to see what's coming and what's going in the ship channel. I, I don't think I've ever driven across it and not kind of look to see, is, there, is it just tugs coming up and down or is there something that's sizable uh, going out? And I still look at some of the bigger vessels and I think, in a storm, an open ocean, I don't think so. 
And so, not my cup of tea. Brother Mike could tell you some stories, and uh, and and Brother Dick could tell you some stories about uh, being on naval vessels that are sizable by uh, by the standards of this era for sure, and uh, and and going through storms and having the waves crash over the entire front of the ship, and uh, like you're going down. And Brother Terry could tell you, but he was always submerged. He was uh, a submariner, and so uh, he's still trying to recover from that too. By the way, uh, and so. Uh, but, but you know, our, our Navy fellows can tell you what it was like to be out there and to endure some of those storms that we really would have a hard time referencing. But mind you, this is an open vessel. And this is a small vessel. I remember not too many years ago. Well, a lot of years ago, I went to Boston Harbor and I went to the USS Constitution, which is nicknamed Old Ironsides. It was built in the Revolutionary War time. And it got its nickname because the American oak was so hard that oftentimes the British cannonballs would bounce off the hull of the ship whenever it struck it. And so she was nicknamed Old Ironside. It's still a commissioned ship in the U.S. Navy today. It's the oldest commissioned ship in the U.S. built in the 1700s. Uh, and so they take it out for its mooring in Boston Harbor a couple of times a year and they turn it so that the weathering and the fading from, uh, from the sun and the tides will, will be equal on both sides of the, of the vessel. Uh, and so uh, when you go there and you look at it, it's impressive, but it's also pretty small when you th are thinking about it on the open ocean. I remember, you know, it's probably been about 15 years ago or so ago now. Uh, it seems like it was yesterday. We're, we're in pastoring a church in, in Arkansas and, uh, and the, they brought a replica of the Mayflower in for school children primarily to come and to, uh, to board it. And they're given all the details about those that were on the Mayflower in 1620 and that came across the Atlantic in that vessel. And I'm telling you, I wouldn't have wanted to be on that in a lake in a storm, let alone across the open ocean. That's small. I mean, that thing is so tiny and they start explaining how many people were on it. And I'm sitting there and I'm thinking, okay, I have some concept of how many people can fit in like a section or a room or small area. As a pastor, that's kind of my world, you know, and I look at a classroom and look at an auditorium. One of the first things, if I go somewhere and visit and I look at an auditorium, the first thing that's going through my mind generally is, uh, if it's in decent condition, the first things is, this probably seats about this many people. It just, I can look at an area and, and with a fair degree of accuracy say, okay, uh, this many people could fit here. And I'm telling you, on the Mayflower, they would have been like sardines for a long period of time. It, it, it was no comfort zone. And to be in that small of a ship in open water in a storm, I'm thinking, I don't think I want to get on there. And that just tells you how desperate they were to escape the persecution that they were undergoing. In this case, they just, this is their life. Many of them, the, the Sea of Galilee was their livelihood. Not all of them, but many of them were. And, and for them to go out, they're not on the smallest vessel. He says here plainly that there were smaller vessels that were with them. And they're, uh, they're going out. And things when they set out are, are, are good. And, uh, and you can study the Sea of Galilee and uh, the Lake of Tiberias. There's multiple names that it's known as. And, uh, and, and you, can, you can study how fast storms can come up on it. And how violent they can get with little or no warning. And here they are in the midst of this storm night waves crashing and it's it's not uh, ridiculous that they would fear it's just ridiculous that they would ask Jesus if he even cared so here they are and Jesus gets up and he just says hey 
wind, waves, enough. And that's the end of it. And their response now is not a ridiculous response at all. But mind you, they've, they've seen him cast out demons. They've seen him restore withered limbs. They've seen him show extraordinary compassion. They've, they've seen him and heard him teach in an incredible way. And their response is simply, what manner of man is this? And you stop and you look at Jesus as a man like no other, for he's God. And we find ourselves in life sometimes wondering, what kind of person, if you're new to Victory Baptist Church and you, you've come in in the last few months, you're still asking the question, what kind of man is our pastor? Some of you, you've been here with me since the beginning and you're still asking the same question. Uh, so, uh, but those that are new, they come in. We, the kids will go back to school. Our young people will go back to school here in a couple of weeks. And uh, when they go and they walk into the classroom, the question that's going to come into their mind is, what kind of uh, man or woman is my new teacher? You get a new boss at work or you take on a new job or you make a transfer or someone leaves and a new boss is hired to come in. You always wonder, what, what kind of a man or woman is this? The same thing in the military, and we had to deal with that more frequently. And in, in, in my branch of service, every two years they move the officers, and every three years they move the enlisted personnel. And every branch does it a little bit different. But uh, you knew whenever you went someplace that uh, you could just calculate, hey, if my company commander has been here for a year, then I've got him for a year, and then I'm getting a new one. Or if the XO, or and if uh, you know if the company first sergeant's been here for two, I've got him for one, and then he's going to be moving on. And you just knew the matriculation of things, and they uh, they they kept a very regimented rotation uh, going about. And always in your mind is, what kind of man is this? Is he fair? Is he unfair? Is he harsh? Is he uh, is he uh, is he hardcore? Is he uh, is he uh, lenient? Is he? Uh, and I'll tell you, uh, I'm not one that looks for the lean and lenient easy. The best commanding officer that I ever had was probably the hardest commanding officer that I ever had. But he was fair, and he led by example, and he he didn't play favorites. He he was very judicious. He had high expectations. He was very stern, and at this point, you know, most of us are in our early 20s. He was probably in his mid-30s, and, and uh, he was promoted to major as he left. He was a captain as a, as a company commander, and, uh, and, and I mean, I saw him at one point have to discipline a young Marine, and, uh, and he was not happy about it because somebody had done something really dumb that he had to discipline and, uh, and formally charge, uh, and then somebody else did something that was an honest mistake, but because of the other guy's mistake, he couldn't let the other thing slide where he really wanted to. He was just fair that way. I appreciated that. Some of the others that I had, uh, one was just arrogant. Uh, you know, Captain Honey wasn't arrogant. He was just stern. He was matter of fact. Uh, the other guy, the, the guy after him was very arrogant. The guy before him was a, really, he was just kind of too slack. He, he needed to be a little bit tighter on some things. 
And so you're always wondering when people are coming, what kind of a person is this? What kind of a man is this? What kind of a, uh, of a supervisor is this person going to be? We find ourselves uh, remembering meeting those people and coming to understand and figure out what they're going to be like. We, we have those thoughts whenever we get new, when elections come and go and new political leaders arise on the scene. And, uh, and it, it doesn't generally take very long for them to prove what kind of people they're going to be. In Mark chapter 4, the disciples finding themselves in distress. And when Jesus calms the sea early here in his ministry, they ask the question. It's a question that's been asked for the ages. There are many people today that still, when you talk of Jesus, wonder what, what is Jesus like? What kind of a man is Jesus? What kind of a God is Jesus? And I can only imagine what it must have been like walking the streets and seeing this stranger come in with his disciples and seeing him enter the gate and the rumblings from the crowd about what he taught out on the countryside as he was making his way in were like. To see everyone's curiosity aroused as, uh, as they were drawn to come and hear him as he went to the synagogue and began to teach and heard tales of how he touched blind eyes and made them heal and did things of other miracles of, uh, of such things. And it generally, once he established his ministry early on, it didn't take long for word uh, to begin to spread uh, of what he was teaching and how he was teaching this strange new doctrine. And he didn't teach it like the scribes. He wasn't dry and tedious and he wasn't uh, just reading along and passing on information that he had acquired. He was teaching as one that had authority, that had commanding understanding of the, uh, of the, of the material that was given and uh, was speaking as if he were its author, because he was. He gave it like no other teacher had ever given it to them before. Then we see as he would stop and Take a moment for someone that was on the sidewalk or the sideway there and he would stop and heal them. In the midst of the crowd with everyone demanding his attention and drawing him to come and teach them something new, he'd say, no, wait a minute, I've got to stop and care for this need here. He would go to the blind and he would give them sight. And the question would ring out as he touched the infirm, what manner of man is this? What manner of man is this that can heal the sick? What manner of man is this that can cause the blind to see? What manner of man that can make the lame, the lame leap and run with joy? That can cause the dumb to speak and the deaf to hear? What manner of man can calm the sea and then raise the dead? What manner of man can comfort a broken heart? And see into the heart of man. He wasn't just a man of power, but a man of compassion. What manner of man could feed so many with so little and have so much left over? What manner of man could close the mouths of hungry lions and could walk into a furnace and shield others from its heat? What manner of man could walk into the home of Jairus and in the midst of ridicule and scorn, calmly replace death with life? What manner of man could forever satisfy the anger of a holy God? What manner of man is this Jesus of Nazareth? 
And I'm here to tell you this morning that he is no ordinary man, but he is the God man. He is all man and he is all God. He is the eternal son of the living God of heaven. He is the alpha and the omega. He is the beginning and the end. He is the first and the last. He is the great I am. And that is to say that I am all that mankind will ever need. When we feel infirmed, when we feel oppressed, when we uh, don't know where to turn and we say, who is going to save me? He answers, I am. When he says, who's going to keep me? He answers, I am. When we need direction and we ask, who will guide me? Comes back the answer from heaven, I am. When we lead strength and we're weakened, who's going to give it? I am. Who can feed me? Who can clothe me? Who will comfort me when my heart is broken? And from heaven comes the answer, I am. No matter how great or how small my need this morning, no matter how uh, fearful I am when I ask what manner of man can help me, Jesus stands from his throne and answers, I am that man. So we consider this morning just simply what manner of man he is. What manner of God he is, I would say first of all that this manner of man intercedes for all of mankind. He's, he's interceding for them on the lake. So pastor, but he's not, he's not praying here. He's intervening. He is stepping in and he is doing what they cannot do. He is interceding on their behalf. In Isaiah chapter number 53 in verse number 12, the Bible says, And he was numbered with the transgressors, and he bare the sin of many, and made intercession for the transgressions. Listen, I have no ability this morning to have my sin forgiven on my own. I cannot earn its forgiveness. I cannot work it off. I cannot repay the debt. I, I am not worthy to be forgiven. But Jesus said, I'll forgive. He's the one that has the power to make intercession for the transgressors. That is to say, he does for us what we cannot do for ourselves. Jesus' intercession for me on Calvary bought my salvation. Hebrews chapter 7 and verse 25 says, Wherefore he is able also to save them to the uttermost that come to God by him, seeking, seeing he ever liveth to make intercession for them. Listen, I'm saying this morning that when I needed a savior, when I needed salvation from my sin and its power and its penalty, Jesus interceded on my behalf. When I needed to be forgiven, when I needed to be drawn to God and compelled to repent, when I needed to be aware of his greatness and my frailty and my wickedness so that I would see that I needed salvation, it was Jesus that stood up and interceded on my behalf. It was the Holy Spirit of God that drew me by the word of God to, to realize that I have sinned against the holy God. I didn't just sin against a good man. I didn't just sin against a good idea. I didn't just sin against a benevolent being. I sinned against an almighty holy God who loves me but will judge me in my sin if I defy him and in his love he said I'm going to draw you to me I'm going to show you my holiness that you might understand 
how vile you are in your sin. And then I'm going to share with you that the chasm is so great that there's no hope that you have in your heart or your mind or your soul that you could ever cross it on your own. And then I'm going to send my son to cross it on your behalf to extend himself for you, to appease my wrath, to pay your debt and to forgive your sin that you might be brought over to me and we can be one. Jesus' intercession for me on Calvary bought my salvation. When he left heaven and he put on human flesh, when he walked among us and was tempted in all points like as we are and yet without sin, when he offered himself a sacrifice, when they came to take him in the garden and he could have cried out and been delivered, but he instead uh, sheathed Peter's sword and, uh, and rebuked him for defending him and said, this is the will of my father. I'm doing this, Peter, for you. When he stood there and allowed himself to be beaten and stripped naked and stood there in the shame of sin. When he allowed them to thrust that crown of thorns down on his head, piercing into his temples and the blood began to flow. When he allowed them to take a cat of nine tails and to whip him to the point that he could not even be recognized as a human being. When he struggled to carry his cross and he laid there and submitted as they nailed him to it. And as they hoisted it and let it slam into the ground and dislocated his joints, he thought only of their forgiveness as he struggled to pull himself up to get a breath. He slid back down to let it out. To cry out, Father, forgive them for they know what they do. To cry out, it is finished. To freely give up his own life, giving up the ghost. No one took it from him. He laid it down willingly. Jesus' intercession for me on Calvary made possible the purchase of my salvation. God said there's a, a crime committed and there's an offense caused. Then justice demands that it be served. And Jesus said they are not will, are worthy or able to even pay the penalty themselves. Father, I'll go. I'll be what they cannot be. I'll do what they cannot do. And I'll appease your anger. And I'll soothe your wrath. And I'll serve your justice. And I'll share them our love that we might be birthing them to, man, to, to salvation. Jesus' intercession on Calvary bought our salvation. What manner of man is this? It's the man that intercedes for us to save our souls. To set us at liberty from our sin. Not only that, Jesus' intercession for me at the throne supplies my needs. We can trust Christ and we can follow him and we can do his will, but we still are going to have times when we have needs and we need uh, uh, somebody meeting those needs who's teaching us the grace of God, who's leading us and sharing with us the scriptures and uh, who's revealing to us what God intends. In Romans chapter 8 and verses 26 and 27, we see likewise the spirit also helpeth our infirmities for we do not what we should. Uh, pray for, we, we know not what we should pray for as we ought, but the Spirit itself maketh intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. And he that searcheth the hearts knoweth what is the mind of the Spirit because he maketh intercession for the saints according to the will of God. Jesus said, if I go away, it's expedient for you for me to go away. He said, I'm going that I might prepare a place for you, that I might bring you into myself, and I'm going that I might pray for you. Jesus' ministry at this moment is to prepare a place for us and to be in prayer for us. He's interceding 
and he's supplying our needs. Jesus' intercession for us then stifles our enemies. Say, Pastor, we have enemies? You bet we do. Satan is the biggest one. The world is not far behind as it is in his control as the God of this world. But Joshua tells us about how God can give miraculous victory uh, in our lives. And uh, in Joshua chapter number 10 uh, and verses 12 through 14, uh, what we see is Israel up against a powerful enemy needing God's intervention that they might, uh, that they might secure the day, needing him to intercede on their behalf. And, uh, and he says here, then spake Joshua to the Lord in the day when the Lord delivered up the Amorites before the children of Israel and said, In the sight of Israel, sun stand thou still upon Gibeon, and thou moon in the valley of Ajalon. And the sun stood still, and the moon stayed until the people had avenged themselves upon their enemies. Is, is not this written in the book of Jasher? So the sun stood still in the midst of heaven and hasted not to go down about a whole day. And there was no day like that before it or after that the Lord hearkened unto the voice of a man uh, for the Lord fought for Israel. I'm just saying this morning that God will fight your battles because they're his. Say, Pastor, is God going to make the sun stand still for us? I don't think that he's going to do that, but I think he's going to do whatever's necessary to give us victory. The point is not that he's going to do things in the same way that he's done them sometimes in scripture that was miraculous in nature, but it can be miraculous enough in nature to meet the need that we have to make the difference in our life. He is the God who loves us, who intercedes for us, who intervenes for us. And when you feel and are overcome and overwhelmed by the enemy, there is a God that is powerful enough to defeat the enemy that you face. If we'll trust him, if we'll lean upon him, if we'll find ourselves, and I think every Christian, no matter how long we've been saved and no matter how uh, much we've seen God do in our lives, should, could have moments and should still have moments in our life when God's intervention in our life is so spectacular and so miraculous that we still would stand up and say, what manner of man is this? This manner of man intercedes for all of mankind. No matter where a person is, no matter what they've done, he cares for them. He loves them. And he wants to give an abundant life to them. If we'll repent from our sin and we'll turn from our sin and we'll place our faith and trust in him and invite him to be our savior and seek eternal life and the gift that he gives, then he'll make us his children. Secondly, this morning, consider that this manner of man can infiltrate the heart of mankind. I can't keep any secrets from God. I can't keep many secrets from my wife after 33 and a half years of marriage. But I can't keep any secrets from God. He knows even what I don't know about myself. And sometimes I can deceive myself, fool myself. But I can't fool God. Jeremiah chapter 17 and uh, we look to this verse often says the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Here's the answer. I, the Lord, search the heart. I try the reins, even to give every man according to his ways and according to the fruit of his doings. Listen, I can convince myself. I can deceive myself. I can compel myself to do all kinds of things. I can make it seem justified. I can make myself feel good about it and even convince myself that God's for things that God clearly states that he's against. But God sees the heart of man. Say, Pastor, no one can understand the burden I'm carrying. Jesus can. No one knows the weight of, that's on my heart 
Jesus does. I can't even, Pastor, I can't even express it to God. It's okay. He knows. He knows the answer that we even we struggle with. Jesus sees the heart of man. Not only does he see the heart of man, but Jesus cannot be deceived by man's heart like man can be. You can't deceive him. And your heart that deceived you can't deceive him. He knows it. Not only that, Jesus can break the heart of man. You know, sometimes God has to break us. Sometimes when we're stubborn in our sin, and I'm glad this morning that God loves his children enough to break them when necessary. Ezekiel chapter 21 in the first seven verses says, And the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, Son of man, set thy face toward Jerusalem, and drop thy word toward the holy places, and prophesy against the land of Israel. And say unto the land of Israel, Thus saith the Lord, Behold, I am against thee. What a terrible, what a frightening statement for God to look at us and say, I'm against you. For me to have such sin against God and such rebellion against God in my heart as his child. For me to look at God and be such a disobedient child to have God look at me and say, I'm against you. Now we know that overall he's for us and what he does is to turn us back to him. And the same is true of the nation of Israel. But in the moment of judgment, in the moment of, 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 of persecution and, uh, and chastisement, he's against what we're doing. So he's trying to correct our action. And say unto the land of Israel, Thus saith the Lord, Behold, I am against thee, and I will draw forth my sword out of its sheath, and will cut off from thee the righteous and the wicked. Seeing then that I will cut off from thee the righteous and the wicked, therefore shall my sword go forth out of his sheath against all flesh from the south to the north, that all flesh may know that I, the Lord, have drawn forth my sword out of his sheath. It shall not return any more. Sigh therefore, thou son of man, in the breaking of thy loins, with the breaking of thy loins, and with bitterness sigh before their eyes. And it shall be, when they say unto thee, Wherefore sighest thou? Thou shalt answer for the tidings, because it cometh, and every heart shall melt, and all hands shall be feeble. And with every spirit shall faint, and all knees shall be weak as water. Behold, it cometh, and shall be brought to pass, saith the Lord God. What's he saying here? He's saying, listen, when I am defiant to my Father in heaven, when I'm, when I'm compelled to work against him, when I'm, when I'm a disobedient child, he loves me enough to infiltrate my heart and to bring rebuke, to draw me back to him. If he needs to break my heart to get my attention and my focus back on the Lord Jesus and the word of God and the will of God, he's God enough to do it. It's not just that he has the power. It's that he loves us enough to do it. That he loves us enough to not let us go our own way and do our own thing. He loves us enough to bring us back into alignment with his will. Jesus can break the heart of man. Jesus can break the heart of a lost man to draw him to himself for salvation. And Jesus can break the heart of a child of God that's in rebellion to their father that they might be brought back to him. Not only that, Jesus can comfort the heart of man. Psalm 147 and verse 3, he said, He healeth the broken heart, and he bindeth up their wounds. Sometimes the heart is broken by him because of our sin, and we are wounded by him because of our sin. And when all the punishment is over, that loving Father comes and soothes and restores. And when the enemies come, he can break them down. What manner of man is this? He's a man of man that can infiltrate the heart of mankind. 
And lastly, this morning, consider that this manner of man can incorporate his will into the life of man. What's he done on this vessel as they're in the sea? As they're being tossed among the waves and as he calms the waves and, uh, and he speaks to them and he makes this moment and he begins to teach them. He's interceding on their behalf. And he knows the fear in their heart. And he's looking at them and he says, where is your faith? How is it that you've seen the, the deaf healed and the blind made to see and you've seen the dead resurrected and you've seen demons cast out? Where is your faith? How is it that you have no faith? What's he doing? He's infiltrating their heart and he's showing them their lack. Listen, my friends, we need God to penetrate our heart and show us where we need to grow. We need God to break our heart and show us our pride and our arrogance. We need God to break our heart and show us our selfishness. We need God to break our heart and show us how insincere and, uh, and how the lack of compassion at times that we have. And we need God to be working in us and intervening in us. And in the midst of those storms, he stands up and he speaks to the heart of man. And he knows what's in the heart of man. And he infiltrates the heart of man and he turns the heart of man back to himself. If we'll respond to him. What kind of man is this? This manner of man can incorporate his will into the life of man. What God seeks to do is to compel us to live his will for our life. Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 6, he says, Not with eye service as men pleasers, but as servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. God doesn't want us to do his will because he presses us into service. Famous pastor and songwriter John Newton, he wrote Amazing Grace. He at one point was a slave trader. At one point, he was a slave himself. And before God saved him, brought him back to England and made him a pastor and a hymn writer. When he wrote Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me, he knew what he was talking about. He was a wicked, wretched man before God's grace got a hold of him. He understood what it was. He knew of what he wrote. And as he wrote that and he, he offered that and he compelled that, he said, I want to just give my heart to Christ. He, he was actually pressed into service in the British Navy. Now, we don't do things that way in our modern time. And so we really, most people don't understand what that would even mean. But you have to understand, back in those days, uh, whenever the, when, the British, when a British captain came into port, if he was short of sailors and he needed some men, uh, then he would just send some guys off of the ship out and he would send them walking the streets of London or whatever town he was moored off of. Uh, and they would go and they would kidnap somebody walking down the street and they would tie them up and they would bring them onto the ship. And just like that, you were drafted into the Navy. You were in Her Majesty's service. That's the way John Newton got in the Navy. He was so vile on the ships that the sailors were so terrified that God's judgment, God would sink their ship in judgment. He, his father was, was not a Christian man, was not a godly man. He was, a, uh, it was rough as well, but his mother was a godly woman and she taught him the scriptures. She taught him uh, to memorize vast portions of scripture. And when he was so vile, whenever he was pressing the service on the Navy, that he would stand up and mock Christianity and taunt God. And in those days, in particular, sailing men were very superstitious people. It was so bad that they finally traded him to a slave ship. That's how he got into that business. He was a vile man, but he was pressed into service. Listen, I'm just saying all that to say this. God doesn't try to press anybody into service. Now, I've been in some churches where they try to press you into service. Victory Baptist Church isn't that kind of church. 
There are a lot of needs. There are a lot of, uh, there are a lot of things that we could do that we've been unable to do because we don't have uh, enough that uh, will step up and say, man, Pastor, can I do this? Can I do that? Can I serve here? Can I serve there? But we're not going to try to press people into service. This is not about uh, over, overloading and overlording God's people. God said, listen, I'm not here to press you into service. I want you to serve me from your heart. I want you to serve me because you love me. I want you to serve me because of your recognition of how I've loved you and how I've saved you and how I've cared for you and how I've set you free. Don't do it to please men. Don't do it to, uh, to, to, uh, because you feel guilted or because you feel uh, compelled because you want the praise of man. Just follow the Lord and do it from the heart. Serve him. And the best way to sing and worship and service is from the heart. The best way to preach is from the heart. The best way to teach a Sunday school class is from the heart. The best way to go and minister to a family uh, that you're picking up their children to get on the vans to come to church is from the heart. The best way to go to meet someone that's grieving the loss of a loved one and that's dealing with sickness in a hospital is from the heart. This manner of man can incorporate his will into our life. Well, Pastor, would he use my life? Of course he will. Why I came. So I'm going to point out just three types here, really. I'm going to some specific individuals, but it's really types of individuals. As we kind of look at this and wrap this up this morning, I want you to consider this just for a moment the life of the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul was a scholar, he was highly educated, he was highly respected, he was very zealous, but he was also wrong. Just because someone has a lot of letters after their name doesn't mean that they've got it all figured out. Paul couldn't have been any more educated in his day to serve God, but yet he didn't understand the reality of Jesus and what he would do in his life. And Jesus came to Paul on the Damascus Road and he met him. And he said, why are you persecuting me? And immediately he gave his heart to Christ. And God used him for the rest of his life. And God used his past wrongs to motivate him to stay faithful to God. And we're going to delve deep into Paul's life this morning. I just want to make this observation that in Paul's case, Jesus showed us that he's capable and he's able to reach the scholarly. He's able to use the scholarly. So, Pastor, why does that matter? Because there are all kinds of people that come together in God's house. There are all kinds of people. You realize this morning that there are people here that are doctors or are studying to be. There are people here that are in the medical profession that are, uh, that are nurses. And there are others that, are, uh, that are, have been high up or retired now but served in law enforcement. There are others that, uh, that have been professional in their careers. We have paralegals and we've got all kinds of them. We also have people that drive forklifts and, uh, and, and warehouses and uh, drive trucks and, uh, and work uh, jobs at uh, fast food places and of every, everything in between. And there's honor in all of it. My point this morning is that don't think that just because someone is scholarly or highly educated or they're a business professional, they might be harder to reach, but Jesus can still use our life. Yes. Consider secondly, Peter. Peter's our skilled laborer. When God called Peter, he didn't go and find Peter. 
doing unskilled labor. He found them doing skilled labor. He was a fisherman. And Pastor, I'd sign up for that. I like to fish. You wouldn't like to fish the way Peter fished. Rolling those nets out and having to hoist them up and deal with the weight and the burden and the frustration of casting and getting nothing or getting the wrong thing. And then at the end of the day, having to not just put the nets away, but before you could do that, you had to wash them and you had to clean them and you had to get them dried out or the, the, the netting material would rot quicker if you didn't take care of it properly. And uh, He was a skilled laborer. And I'm just telling you this morning, if you're a skilled laborer, good, God's got great things in store for you. If you're highly educated, good. God's got great things in store for you, Pastor. What about me? I, I'm, I'm, I'm not there yet, or I'm not that, or maybe it's not my skill set, or that's not my ambition, my dream, my goal. I have good news for you, too. When Jesus died, there was a thief on the cross. Two, actually. One rejected him, but the other one. The other one looked at him and said, Father, Jesus, would you... Help me. Would you forgive me? He defended him. And Jesus said, today you'll be with me in paradise. <laughs> it doesn't matter this morning if you're a scholar, if you're a skilled laborer, or if you're subjected. As if you feel you've got nothing that you can offer. You do. So, Pastor, you don't know my sin. He was a thief on a cross. He was being crucified rightly for his crimes. Jesus crucified unjustly. This man was crucified justly by his own confession. This was a man that said, my sins are so great. I don't, you meet people that way. If you only knew what that person did, Pastor, you, you would never tell me that I should forgive them. If you only knew what that person did, you wouldn't believe that God could save them. Listen, the man was a thief on a cross and God saved him. Jesus had compassion on him. You can never get so low that Jesus can't or won't save you. You can never be so broken that he can't heal you. The testimony of this thief is still bringing men to Christ after 2,000 years. God is limited neither by our abilities or our inabilities. He is limited only by our unwillingness. Will we give our heart to Christ? Will we completely trust and completely obey his will. If you look this morning and you see your life and say, Pastor, I'm in the midst of a storm right now. I'm being tossed on the waves. If you look at your life and say, Pastor, you just don't understand the darkness that I'm in right now. The confusion of my heart. Pastor, if you looked at my life, you, 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 would, you would say, why would I need Jesus? Everything's going great for me. Wherever you are, and whatever the date, of, of whatever today brings you, may I say to you that he can act in such a way that would cause you to stand up and say, what manner of man is this? What manner of man is he to you? Is he just a teacher? Is he a miracle worker? Is he God? Is he my intercessor? Is he my guide? He's all that and more. But what is he to you? See, it really doesn't matter what Jesus is if I reject it until my judgment day. Then it will matter. What manner of man is this? Great question. He's an awesome, compassionate, loving, powerful God.
that wants to serve me and be everything in my life that I lack and need. But what manner of man is he to me? Is he someone that I hold off at arm's length? Is he that manner of man that I don't want to get that close to? Is he the manner of man that I want to spend time with? That I want to get to know in a deeper way? That I want to draw upon his power? That I want to ask him to lead me and guide me and direct me? What manner of man is this Jesus? If you're here this morning and say, Pastor, if I died right now, I'm not sure I'd go to heaven. May I say to you that the manner of man that Jesus is a Savior. He's the one that's drawing you and compelling you to himself and he is the one that can forgive your sins and give you eternal life. You'd say, Pastor, I'm, I, I'm, I, I'm, my body is broken. He's the one that can give healing. And if it's not his will to heal, he can, he's the one that can give grace to sustain what he's put upon you. And Pastor, my heart is broken. He's the one that can give you comfort. Pastor, I don't know what God would have me to do. He's the one that can show you. I don't know how to go about it. He's the one that will open the doors. He's the one that will put the people in your life that will help you make the right decision. He's the one that will help advance you. He's the one that's preparing a place for you. He's the one that's making intercession for you at the front hand of God. There is no other man like Jesus. There is no other God like Jesus. If he's not yours, he can be. And if he is yours, is he in control?